Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And today, we're talking about Metroid Dread, developed by Mercury Steam and Nintendo EPD and published by Nintendo. It was released in October of 2021 for the Switch. And we'll be talking spoilers, so heads up if you're sensitive to that. I think we got into this game. Uh, Brian, I think you picked it up first and then convinced me to come along for the ride on this one. Glad I did. Yeah, I've been a, a longtime fan of this series uh, myself. I've played played everything pretty much as it came out since Super Metroid, uh, which I have a lot of fond memories of playing as a younger person um, way back in the day uh, with my cousin. And... I, you know, I, they've come out in sort of an A um, chron- or non chronological order since then with the Metroid Prime offshoots and, you know, this mainline 2D series coming out sporadically over the course of the last two decades. So <laughs> <laughs> I've had a, a lot of history with this one. That's kind of funny. My own approach to Metroid has been a little different. Um, my first game was Prime, uh, and mm. then I followed, completed that whole trilogy. And after I did that, I tried to go back to Super Metroid, and it didn't hit for me. I bounced on it after maybe two hours of gameplay. That's interesting, because, you know, a lot of people will hold up Super Metroid as, like, the be-all, end-all of Metroidvanias. Like, while Metroid on the NES may have invented the genre, it was largely thought that Super Metroid on the SNES perfected it. Oh, it's possible, but I feel like the game was a product of its time both in terms of uh, game design decisions, controls. Um, I'll tell you, this game felt better. Uh, We'll talk about that (laughs) later on. But yeah, I'm the odd one out in the Metroid fandom in which uh, Super Metroid was not my first, and I don't hold it as in high regard. You know, I almost think that those, like, the Prime games are great. I, I like them a lot. Um, I've, I've actually, it's funny you say that you finished the, the trilogy there. I've only played um, the first two, and I really like them, but they're very different than the, the mainline 2D Metroid games. And I think that the 2D ones are the ones where, you know, the, the famous genre-defining aspect of Metroidvania comes from. Um, but I, uh, you know, I, you know, Super Metroid Zero Mission, which came out to sort of remake the original Metroid and then add some some context and then of course Fusion the direct predecessor to to Dread were all like favorites of mine uh, as they were as they were coming out throughout the 90s and 2000s I've heard a lot of good things about Fusion like um, I've heard a lot of people say that's their favorite Metroid game um, but I haven't touched that one myself I think I'm still a, a, Metro, a Super Metroid uh, personally I think Super Metroid is, is my favorite though Fusion boy Fusion is uh, really good. Um, it's funny, the, we always forget Metroid Episode 2, because I want to put this up here right up front. Metroid Dread is Metroid Episode 5. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I think it comes between... Oh no, it's uh, after Fusion, that's right. It's the very last one, yeah. So we had the original Metroid on NES... Samus Returns on Game Boy, which I also played courtesy of my cousin who let me borrow it, and I don't think I ever returned it. Um, Super Metroid on SNES, uh, Fusion on GBA, and now Dread. Um, Wait, where does the so, Prime yeah. 
series fit in? The the Prime series, chronologically in the Metroid universe, comes in between the elements of Metroid and Metroid 2. So yeah, between the, the original and the Game Boy one. So it is early on, and this is before, Metro, is before Super Metroid, um, is when the Prime ones took place. But we are way in the future now. We are at the end of Samus's career here for Metroid Dread. So... Um, you know, this is uh, all of her experiences under her belt. She has, and you can see this in the way the game portrays her. She has had enough of this shit. Um, she is just <laughs> a stone, a stone cold badass, and will, um, you know, not put up with anything uh, throughout the course of this. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about her characterization uh, as we go, but. You know, this is obviously a long-running series, given all the discussion we've just had about it, and that is largely due to. Um, Yoshio Sakamoto, who is uh, one of the main prominent developers of Nintendo's R&D 1 division, who is responsible for Metroid, among other things, and uh, he is basically responsible for making sure that this final Act 5 of this game came out when it did, and it came out late. Oh yeah? Was there a little bit of uh, developmental delays there? (laughs) Yeah, so after Fusion came out in 2002... Um, we have had a fallow period of about 19 years for the 2D Metroids. <laughs> so um, having Metroid Dread come out in 2021, basically, uh, as I understand it, Sakamoto said, hey, you know, I want to do something very specific with this. The the tension around um, Metroid Fusion's use of SAX, which is basically like a clone of Samus who like stalked you throughout the game. Think like Resident Evil 2's um, Mr. X situation. Um, he wanted to expand upon that, but couldn't do so given the hardware that was out at the time, the GBA, the DS, the 3DS, etc. And so finally, the he felt like the tech was up to snuff for what he wanted to do with the Switch. And so uh, Metroid Dread emerged from a 15-year period of development hell and finally <laughs> came out in, um, in uh, 2021. And now, uh, you know, almost a half a year later, it sold about 3 million copies. So it did pretty well for itself. And I think in 17 or 18 is when they remade Metroid 2. And I think that game saw some commercial success, which, you know, when you're trying to do and launch a new title for a a franchise that hasn't had a hit side scrolling wise since 2002, Mm -hmm. uh, having that to kind of like test the market waters out is helpful. Totally, especially, and also testing a developer out, right? I mean, uh, Mercury Steam, who we mentioned up top as one of the developers of this game in cooperation with Nintendo's uh, Entertainment and Planning Division, um, they had done, as you said, the remake of Metroid 2 for the 3DS, and um, they did a great job with it. And so Nintendo was like, hey, you know, we need someone to help us with Dread, and that is how this game came to be. Uh, All in all, I think it, it, as you said, it worked out great, you know, they as far as I'm aware, Mercury Steam worked on a few other things like some of the recent Castlevania games, and I wasn't a huge fan of like those 3D iterations of Castlevania, but this this is good. Like I think they've done a really good job with their, their Metroid outings, or at least Dread, since I haven't played the other one. Oh yeah, bang up job of this game for sure. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Dread. Like, what is what is the idea behind Dread? Um, as I mentioned, Fusion was... Oh, you got to start from the beginning here. We're doing the <laughs> whole summer, summary of all the games. We got Metroid. There's evil brain, floating brain parasites called Metroids. They want to <laughs> eat you. You kill them. Uh, but you save one of them, right? Or is that the second game? 
that's actually Super Metroid is where you save the the last of the Metroids, um, and they it imprints upon you. But yeah, so uh, I guess we should start off at the top. Um, you play as Samus Aran. You're a, a bounty hunter with power armor who she inherited from her adoptive parents who are Chozos, which are alien bird people. Although, is any of that lore in the first three games, or is that not till you get to Prime? I think it is. Um, it is... I, I was looking at this, uh, doing a little bit of research, and there's a link to an old Nintendo manual for um, the original Metroid, and some of that is spelled out in there. Um, basically how, like, Samus's homeworld was invaded by space pirates, space pirates being one of the, like, main antagonists of the series, um, alongside the Metroids, who sort of occupy a different space. But long story short... Samus's colony was destroyed. She was adopted by Chozo. She was given the power armor and infused with Chozo DNA so she could work with it. So uh, Samus, after that series of events, part human, part Chozo, all badass, all full of power armor. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, you know, she goes on several adventures, one of them, the one directly before Metroid Dread being Fusion, where she first encounters... Um, the X-Parasite. Yeah, the X-Parasite. But before that, she was tasked with um, helping eliminate the Metroids, uh, who were bioengineered weapons, right? Uh, She succeeded in doing so, but as a result, the X-Parasite, who the Metroid were created to help suppress, started proliferating again. And uh, Samus was attacked as a result of that uh, by that X-Parasite. The events of fusion ensue, and long story short... Uh, she is infused with Metroid DNA that allows her to absorb the, mex- the X-Parasite, therefore making her now part Chozo, part Metroid, all badass, all full of power. <laughs> I like that, you know, long, uh, you know, uh, hilarity ensues, long story short. She now has Metroid's <laughs> DNA in her. Yeah, so, you know, these were initially like the enemy, right? She was set to like eradicate and succeeded in doing so in Metroid 2 the metroids and now she is like one one imprinted on her and thinks of her as mama then it dies and now she like basically is the last living quote-unquote metroid or at least living being possessing of metroid dna um so yeah like really convoluted stuff going on in the metroid <laughs> lore but it's it's good and this game like thrusts you into that with a very little fanfare and probably a lot less reading than i just did expounding to get you up to speed on where we're at right x parasite has been spotted on this planet zdr samus is going in to check it out because she's the only one that can to be fair too if a lot of that backstory was in manuals back in the 90s i mean who wants to read manuals right if i wanted (sighs) books i'd go to a library what I would give to read a good manual these days. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, with the um, old maps and everything they came with. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, I recently had a, an experience with that. Um, uh, AAA Gaming Pariah, uh, Cyberpunk 2077, had a really nice like world compendium that was packaged along with it. And I, I got a physical copy of that because it was the cheapest way. Uh, aka best buy for ten dollars to get that game and you got a free upgrade <laughs> to ps5 with it so i was like sure i'll pick up this physical game and it had like all that old school stuff it had the map it had the world compendium and i, I thought it was cool mm-hmm. game wasn't great but the world compendium was cool. <laughs> <laughs> more manuals that's what we demand now exactly um where's my metroid world manual <laughs> 
But yeah, so um, as I was saying, uh, at the outset of Dread, Samus is heading to planet ZDR because she took a bounty to investigate an appearance of the X-Parasite. There's a quick opening cinematic when you land where this uh, huge bird guy uh, who you may recognize as a Chozo, you may not if you haven't played the earlier Samus games or Metroid games, um, but he beats you but lets you live. Why did he let you live after that big fight? I don't know. But that's where the game starts for you. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I had here in my notes, Josh, is where are you when you wake up? Why are you alive? You clearly just got your ass handed to you, to you by a big bird guy. Um, but to me, this is interesting in a couple ways. One is like they are clearly putting you in a an even higher disadvantaged situation than they have in the past, right? Your survival yeah, they're basically telling you from the outset, hey, you're you're screwed. You're probably not going to survive. Uh, even if you do manage to get out of here, that guy that just kicked your ass is waiting for you. So uh, that sort of helps them pump up the horror or dread element that is supposed to be the main thing they're going for in this game. Uh, I don't know if I quite agree with that. I mean, how many games have a boss you lose to at the very beginning? <laughs> it's too much of a trope in order to have the emotional impact that I think they were going for. Well, for what it's worth, it doesn't work for me as well as the last game's version of this did, right? In the in Fusion, you are being pursued by, as I mentioned, SAX, basically a clone of you with all of your powers and you have none of them. And that, like, just worked better than what they have in this game, which is the Emmys. Um, which we can talk about a little bit later, but basically this planet not only has um, Chozo, who we thought were died out, you know, a Chozo warlord who kicked your ass, but also these seven killer androids that are made of impenetrable metal that resist all your weapons, and all they want to do is hunt you down and kill you because they've been hacked. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's not a good situation, but to your point, uh, given it's a trope, uh, it's a situation that uh, many video game protagonists are in, and so why shouldn't Samus be able to overcome it too? <laughs> and she does. She explores the world of a ZDR and gains new abilities as she's moving around the map in classic Metrovania fashion. Yeah, that's right. So obviously this is a a 2D Metroidvania in the same lineage as the one that started it all, good old Metroid itself, back in 1986. So um, yeah, you play as as Samus, gaining powers. Uh, At the beginning of this game, she's blue, thanks to her power armor being removed through uh, some trickery that that Chozo that beat you up at the beginning of the game um, pulled. And in a, a slight twist, you start at the bottom of the map. Usually in these Metroid games, you're starting at the surface of the planet and working your way into the depths. I do like that in this one, they invert that, and they're like, hey, you landed on the surface, but when you woke up, you're at the very bottom, and you got to climb back out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a nice little little bit different. It's like um, one of the common Metroid things is you got to get back to your ship if you didn't start off right at your ship. Uh, you got to find where it is or, oh, it got a, you know, crash landing. It's located over here. So that's one of the kind of early mid-game goals. Whereas here, it's like right away, 
you got to get to your ship, and that's the whole game, nearly. <laughs> yeah, literally the whole game is like getting back to the surface to find your, your ship, or to at least get back to where that person that attacked you was, uh, who we find out later is named Ravenbeak, so we can refer, refer to him as such going forward. Mm. You know, thinking about the uh, progression that you get with Samus, one of the things I've noticed in this Metroid game is... A lot of those progression abilities are weapon-based. Like, there are some movement kind of ones with the morph ball or the dash move, but so many of them are missile upgrades or, like, scatter missiles or beam upgrades or things like that. Um, It kind of lends itself to a very door-based sort of flow with the map. Like, okay, I have a gun that is the key to this door now. Yeah, and there's other ways that this works too because, you know, Samus, her gun arm, as you said, goes through a lot of iterations throughout a given playthrough, and that's like part of the appeal, right? Your weapon changes over time, it gets more powerful. Every time you pick one of these up, you know, whether it's the spacer or the wave beam that allows it to go through walls or the plasma beam that lets it penetrate certain things or or whatever, it's also getting more powerful. And usually um, that's like... At the outset of getting it, you immediately feel more powerful. Like enemies you just shot in the previous room, all of a sudden are dying in fewer hits. But then you go into the next area, and the enemies just become more powerful in this game. Mm-hmm. And it's like an arms race that never actually pays off in you feeling any more powerful. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of feel like, one of the worst things with this was there's a certain point where you unleash Parasite X onto the world, or it gets unleashed, and it's gives you the same enemies but now you have to kill them twice instead of just (laughs) once like before and oh that was one of the weaker moves this game did i think i i agree like this the the using the weapon as a mechanical change to how your gun functions is interesting the fact that it makes your gun you know go from a four to a five power wise is not interesting and the fact that they just then bump up all the enemies hp to compensate for that making you feel exactly as powerful as you did before kind of cuts the power fantasy aspect of this off at the knees yeah there you do get some interesting um new abilities like brian said these shots can go through walls or do this or that but for the most part you use those new abilities in the exploration rather than the combat yeah absolutely and there are a lot of really good other non-combat, non-gun-related abilities that you get in this game. So, you know, if you're familiar with Samus Aran, you know she's got her... Uh, morph Ball! Yeah, she's got her Morph Ball. She's got her gravity suit that lets her move in water. She's got the various suit that lets her withstand heat. Uh, some newer, interesting ones for this game. She had um, the... Uh, flash shift, which is basically an air dash, which really lended some extra mobility, especially to the boss fights in combat that I really liked. She has the melee counter in parry, which was borrowed from um, the remake of 2, the Samus Returns on 3DS, which I, I enjoy. I think the ability to sort of go up and smack an enemy with your gun arm um, and counter them in some cases is really, like it adds some dynamicism to the combat that was lacking. Mm-hmm. So all, all of that, I think, is is good. And of course, some of the classics are extremely well executed here. You know, the shine spark and the speed boost and things like that just feel... They make you feel like a speedrunner, and that's always fun. <laughs> yeah, sometimes um, there's a lot of backtracking in this game. Being a Metroidvania, you get uh, new abilities that unlock new routes, so you're going back to the older places 
um, and some of those speedier abilities, especially when you knew what was coming up so you could anticipate them, um, you could pull off some pretty good, um, I don't know, speed throughs. Yeah, and she start, uh, Samus starts with a slide in this game too, which allows you to, before you get the morph ball, do some quick ducking and navigating under ledges. Oh yeah, I is, like that one. Yeah, extremely important for parkouring yourself away from an Emmy. One of the hallmark things about this game from, from my perspective. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned that you do a lot of backtracking in this game, and I actually want to take this opportunity to say, like, I don't feel like you do a lot of backtracking in this game compared to other Metroidvania-type games. I think this game has a pretty strong hand on how it wants you to progress, and it leads you through in a pretty linear way, a lot of times by weaponizing one-way doors. Um, you know, like, you may feel like you're backtracking back to an area, but that was really the only option that was ahead of you at that particular point. Yeah, this game's um, very linear in terms of its happy path. Like, you mm. could always go back and find um, new side routes here or there. And if you're like me, that's almost a compulsion to do that when you, you know, get the uh, swarmer missiles. You're like, oh, I know where one of those doors are. Actually, <laughs> the map does a very good job showing you where they are, too, so you can track them down. Yes. Um, I think one of the issues I had with this that I think they could have done better was um, they had those teleporters, but they were all connected to a single other teleporter, so that if you weren't by the right one, you had to cover, you had to uh, traverse half the map through a specific way and kind of plan out your route in order to do that. They do do some things with this later on where they know you're going to have to go back this way, so they have some set-piece sort of things. But overall, I feel like on that backtracking to pick up that extra missile pack, um, I did more backtracking, I think, than I would have preferred to. So I think I took the opposite tact with this. And I think the, the lesson I quickly internalized from this game is always take the teleporter. Because the teleporter is going to send you where you need to go. Like, that's the reason they put it there, it seems. And, and that's what I meant by this game has, like, a very powerful um, uh, author's hand. Or it, all, it can almost feel a little patronizing at points. And I, that's my probably where I, like, where I feel like it doesn't succeed, it feels patronizing. And where it does, it feels like magic that you're in exactly the right place to use the upgrade you just got. <laughs> but is the exploration still fun? Yes. Did it allow me to connect with the world as much as if I had just internalized where things were and navigated there myself? No, not so much. You didn't like the map that told you where every type of door was? Yeah, not only did it tell me exactly where the type of door was, but it turns out if I like turned around, I couldn't go back the way that I came and the door that I needed to go through was the only one in front of me. (laughs) So like, it is like a large interconnected world, eventually. But as you're making your way through it, like throughout the course of the game's events, as you're getting your powers and events are happening in the world and the world state is changing, which by the way, I like and we should talk about more, it is sort of shunting you down one specific path or hallway at a time. And that it doesn't let you feel that experience of space shrinking with experience that I get from like a Dark Souls or hmm. a, a Hollow Knight or something like that, where like you gain a mastery of the world as a whole rather than you just gain a mastery of the mechanics, which is also satisfying, but it's a different type of satisfying. No, that's a very good point. Uh, looking back at the 
playthrough I did, I don't recall very many branching paths, except the ones that were like, okay, if you want to hike up these 50 flights of stairs to pick up that missile pack that you couldn't get to before, <laughs> go for it. Right. And and because I basically noped out of that, did I end the game with a lot fewer energy tanks than I would have otherwise? Absolutely. But did it like keep me from experiencing something? Not not really. Um and this game does have a lot of great areas. Like, you know, you you revisit areas and state changes, like some of the big ones throughout the course of the game that I really liked were you um getting like heat sources to uh, flow into a certain area so it thaws out in a fr- per- or previously frozen area or um, you release the X parasite as you mentioned earlier and that changes the entire um, type of enemies that are in a, a place and changes like what types of enemies are present there too and I, you know I, li- I like the idea of revisiting with a world state change like I think that keeps things more interesting than otherwise mm-hmm. but it didn't properly balance that with allowing you to sort of gain a mastery of the of the world itself. This game, um, one thing it did very well is it managed to avoid one of my big uh, Metroidvania. I don't know if I'd call it a pet peeve, but just something I don't get uh, very impressed with when I see is when I come across a new area and like there's a gap and I'm like, oh, this is a double jump right here. Or, oh, <laughs> uh, I got to get the grappling hook or the snorkel and fins and something, and then I can cross this obstacle. Like, I enter into a room, and I, I can read it right away because I know what upgrades to expect. Or sometimes I figure out the upgrade just by looking at the rooms that have happened before. And I'm like, yeah, there's going to be a double jump somewhere along this game. There has to be because that's how you get around here. So I really like it when a game throws things around uh, metroid did this in two ways it did those environmental changes you mentioned like um there's one time you turn off the furnace for the whole lower levels and they all uh, freeze over and the water um you can't just go through the water you have to figure out new ways around to navigate there and that's not something i expected so i loved doing that bit Another thing that nice they do nicely is they have destructible terrain and uh, hidden paths inside the game, and those let you um, they you can't read a room when you first enter it because things might be uh, destructible. Yeah, I I like that, and I also like the um, I agree with all that you said by the way, but I also like the fact that they switched up the upgrade order compared to what you would typically see in a Metroid game, right? Like. Typically, in these games, uh, at least along the mainline path, you're getting the morph ball pretty early so that you can move through spaces that you aren't able to just slide through, and um, it short-circuits that, like, oh, I see this small like thing that I can't fit through. That's annoying. Hopefully, I'll get the thing that um, allows me to do that soon. It seemed to me that this game had an interminably long time before he got the morph ball compared <laughs> to most entries in the series. Um, but it worked, right? Like, Because oh, the whole time I was thinking, like, damn, did I miss the morph ball or something? Like, what's going on here? And I, t- to that end, it, it maybe exacerbates some of those feelings you were talking about, of, like being able to clock a progression point that you don't have yet before you even get it Mm -hmm. but at the same time it builds anticipation so like that's a double-edged sword i suppose yeah you know Um, it's coming (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i I think there's a few different ways that they like are trying to subvert your expectations and like trying to do it in a way that like 
keeps things fun while still building anticipation. I will say, I just love the way the movement in this game felt. Like doing the parkour with Samus, um, doing the slides underneath everything. Uh, They just, it felt so smooth. Um, And it, it felt like you were really, like you started off this master of the mechanics in some ways. Yeah, like the fact that Samus is an extremely experienced and capable bounty hunter by the start of this game totally comes through in her movements and actions and, you know, in some of the cutscenes that you see too, but let's focus on the movement. You know, hmm. she is very fast. The movement is extremely smooth, as you said. Um, they have some really nice flourishes in the animations, like where she'll peer through little holes. If you like bump up into a wall, she'll like point her gun in there and like see what's going on. Um, I think they really took a lot of care in the way that she moves and the way she moves in relation to enemies and adding that melee move as well really like helps make things feel extra kinetic not only in movement but in combat and i think this shines through in no place better than in some uh, one place that can also be some of the most annoying parts of the game the emmy encounters So I guess we should talk about uh, the big uh, several-ton elephants in the room, the seven uh, variously colored and flavored robots, the Emmys, or extraplanetary multi-form mobile identifiers. Um, Yes, identifiers. (laughs) That's what I'm going to name my cyborg war weapon. I was going to say, these things basically just will come up to you and stab you um, immediately if you don't uh, evade them or... Uh, successfully parry them which wow uh, extremely short timing window on this I think I successfully did it like six times total yeah that's Um, about how many I got to (laughs) Uh, but yeah these killer robots will absolutely chase you down and it's not a question of what if they catch you but it's when they catch you yeah I and the fun thing or interesting thing about the Emmys, rather, is that they do exist in specific zones in each of the the world's main areas. So each sort of major region in ZDR has an Emmy that patrols it, or at least patrols a part of it. And generally speaking, it's in a area that you're going to have to traverse through back and forth several times as you're exploring the area. So Mm -hmm. you're like, oh man, I got to enter the the Emmys den for a little bit here to make my way over to the other side of um, Darien or or Dairon or whatever. And um, you have to be stealthy. Like this is forcing Samus to use some of the same, they're evolving the stealth things that were going on in fusion with SAX and um, evolving the Emmy as well as, as you go with different Emmys having different powers throughout the course of the game. And then there's different maneuvers you can do. Like if an Emmy spots you, you can run away and there's some one way gates. Like um, if you run through this door and then step on the switch, the Emmy has to go around another way. So that buys you a little time. And then once you do get to the doors to these Emmy zones, um, if uh, you haven't been spotted, you can enter and exit at any time, and the Emmy cannot follow. Right, but if you are spotted, then they lock the area down, and you have to sort of re-enter stealth before you can leave. And I think this is where I want to call out one aspect um, of the game's sound design that I think is, like, excellent. Um, and when you first enter an Emmy area whatever music was going on for that region of the world fades away and you just get these like slight bleeps and boops of clearly the 
Yeah, the Emmy's scanning the area. And if they detect that you're nearby but don't necessarily see you, it slightly increases in urgency. So you're you're getting this feeling of dread. I think there's a small like color pulse that happens too, that, that mm-hmm. t- gives you info on the Emmy's state if it hasn't seen you at all or if it's um, like oh it knows so- it's heard something and knows something's going on. I was going to say yeah, there's a little like uh, uh, Metal Gear Solid like alert bubble that goes up above its head if it sees or suspects something. Also, I think key to mention is one of the early game power-ups in this game is the stealth suit, or whatever they call it, which uh, makes you invisible um, to any enemies nearby. You know, if the Emmy runs you over, it's going to know you're there, but you can use it to hide for a limited amount of time. It'll drain your energy, and then pretty rapidly after that, your health, Mm -hmm. which is a great kind of like tension builder. If you just need to be invisible a little bit longer, but look, your health's going down so fast. (laughs) It can definitely be nerve-wracking, but the most nerve-wracking thing of all is if the Emmy outright spots you, and the music goes crazy, you know, klaxons blaring, and, um, you know, lots of high-pitched beeps and woos, and I'm sure I'll cut the music in here, but it is like a heart attack in a box. You just have to evade, eventually stealth again, and then, um, yeah, if they catch you, you're dead. But as we said, you can counter, but it's hard, and then really all you can do if you counter is run away. The game is very explicit about these killer robots being immune to anything you can throw at them. Your weapons are useless. Uh, the one thing you can do is hidden somewhere inside the Emmy zone is, wh- what's it called, the spark? Yeah, there's like a, a sh- uh, spark. Uh, I don't remember the name of it, but <clears> this <throat> has been a little bit since I, I killed one of these things. But basically you get a big badass power up for your gun that allows you to actually penetrate the uh the armor of the Emmy, and once you get it, all of a sudden you need to find a place where you can properly uh, weaken them, charge up the blast for this um, gigantic blast, and then finally take out the the Emmy in what is, without fail, a pretty thrilling encounter. The weapon upgrade you get here is a one Emmy use weapon, (laughs) so you don't get to take it to the next guy, but it's really interesting what they do. Um, when you have this badass spark gun or whatever it's called, um, you can enter into an aiming mode where it goes to an over-the-shoulder kind of cam on Samus. Uh, looks very interesting, very dramatic angle, and you can aim upwards and downwards, and you have to pummel the Emmy's head the with shield, yeah. the shield face with enough um, shots to break the shield, and then you charge up and let loose with a giant laser that fries the thing. And it is not only satisfying to see that Emmy finally be defeated, but two, you normally gain a power from them. Usually it's a power that they were previously using against you in the same area. And then finally, the most satisfying thing of all, is that that area is now secured, and you can pass through it at will, which (laughs) is a big relief. It sets up an interesting rhythm with these Emmy zones, which are large chunks of the zones they are in. Like there's paths branching in and outwards of them, but they are fairly large areas. But 
when you first come across one of them, there is no exploration. There is only escape and survival and sneaking through to get to the next door, which you know is going to be there because that's how the game's designed. But um, <laughs> it's very different um, senses, your diff- different feelings when you're going through these. Oh, absolutely. It, it totally changes the dynamic of the game. Like Samus, the bounty hunter, is generally speaking the most badass thing. There are some like rank and file enemies that can be annoying to take out, but none of them are more powerful than you. Um, we'll talk about bosses in a minute because that's an entirely different conversation. But the Emmys are like the they are the prime, the apex predators of the planet, uh, really. So being able to like finally get one over on them is a really wonderful feeling in game. Um, although they can be a little little frustrating. <laughs> Before we move on to the talking about the bosses, which were great in this game, I have to call out the bullshit last Emmy that you fight <laughs> in this game. Um, the entire game sets you up for learning these Emmy rules. Like, you can sneak by them doing this, you can maneuver by them doing that. And this last one just sees through walls and knows where you are instantly. But it doesn't set it up like it's an escape sequence. You still have to go through and work your way around this. And I think they could have been a little more obvious with their environmental cues of which ways you were supposed to go when you're being chased by this very speedy, very scary killer robot. Um, Because there were a couple points where running through that last Emmy zone, I was not sure where I could go to. So I died in a corner a couple of times because I was waiting for there to be a door and there never was one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they they definitely like, I feel like all the different iterations of the Emmy like took a little bit to like learn and understand what you were supposed to be doing, you know, whether it's using a cloak or just running away or finding the way out and you know, one thing or another, but that last one definitely did, I agree, throw you for a little, it was one like logical leap a little too far. And the power that they gave it just seemed like so unavoidably, they were guaranteed to detect you basically, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, it, it just made it a little too much of a stretch to figure out like, oh, well, clearly, I just need to come back here a different time or in a different way. And that wasn't the case. Like I said, it can lead to some frustrating situations. But what were less frustrating were the bosses in this game. For the most part. (laughs) I wouldn't say they were less frustrating, because they were pretty hard. I think that was like my main logline for the bosses in this game, um, that weren't the enemies, that is, is that they were pretty technically difficult and like some of them reminded me of some like Mega Man X fights uh, or Mega Man bosses that I've, I've faced over the years you know like with the amount of sort of dashing and jumping over and you know getting off a quick shot here finally using a set of missiles over there it's just a lot of technical uh, a lot was asked of you technically and with this game's control scheme to, to beat some of these bosses. This game was very much into a um maneuver-based boss fight. You had to be jumping up and down like uh, Yoda during the lightsaber <laughs> duels. You know, you had to be going all over the place. Yeah, and, you know, I, I found it interesting that they also made you return to some QTEs and some very specific cinematic flourishes and finishers that Samus was able to do, but they lended a lot more credence to the fact that Samus is now a badass. And, like, yeah, <laughs> at a certain point in the fight, Samus is just going to take this mutant lizard by the snout and 
pummel them with a missile to the face a few times to, to close this out real quick like and I liked that like it was um, you know I, I think this game could have easily been called Metroid Badass but maybe it just doesn't have the same ring as Metroid <laughs> Dread because I, I think I felt badass a lot more than I felt dread in this game but I don't know I really liked that about this game is just showing what a badass Samus was finally after all these years of her sort of being a silent reserved more so protagonist I did like the quick time events in this game um I think the game I think of most with quick time events is God of War 1 and 2 uh, I know mm. you've played the m- many more in the series since then but those are my only two I've played and um they were very good looking but they were so commonplace that it lost the effect with the bosses especially with the difficulty of the bosses when you got one off you're like okay here's a chance to really go to town on some damage yes and and that that was always satisfying um the bosses in this game come in a few different flavors right so there's some returning faves you get Kraid uh back from <laughs> super metroid um you get some so it's, you know, your standard fare of weird mutants and experiments that are on the planet. And then you get the Chozo. You get like a Chozo knight. And these are sort of like supposed to be the closest to one for one that you will fight. You know, they, they have a similar moveset to Samus. They have guns, they have shields, they have melee attacks. And those I found pretty thrilling. Like the, the Chozo fights were the most technical uh, as, as I or at least from what I felt. And they also had cool QTEs to finish them off in, in a lot of different areas, especially once they became like the ex-parasite-infected Chozo warriors. <laughs> I think the two boss fights that I ended up thinking had surpassed the difficulty curve were the double Chozo warrior fight and the final boss fight. Oh, man, that last boss fight was really hard. And I did like, however, in the, in it that they requested that you use pretty much your whole arsenal like even the power bombs which Mm -hmm. up until this point were pretty much like an exploration only tool had a huge role to play because if you didn't use a power bomb to remove this gigantic blast that was going to be coming down on you you were probably going to have problems with that fight even more problems than you already had (laughs) i will say straight Uh, up i i think i bounced off of that fight maybe after a half dozen tries. I'll give you the reason why in a, in, a, in our in our next uh, next section here. But um, <laughs> all the other fights I thought were super fun. Um, great balance of difficulty, asking the player for technical skill, and being readable in what they were trying to do. I agree with that. Um, generally speaking, uh, the, the, there was no attack in this game that was unavoidable. You could play this game as a no-hit, like there was no damage soaking you needed to do, despite the fact that I think the most common way that I got through any given boss fight was to just damage race them. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I have to ask then, so did you get to get through the final boss, and can I spoil what happens after? Or <laughs> Oh, I saw a YouTube video of it afterwards. I'll tell you why. I bounced on this fight after so few, so few deaths against it. It's because um, leading up to this boss fight, there's been this AI that's been directing you, oh, go to here next, go do this next. And it turns out, <laughs> oh my, the AI was actually the evil bird statue guy, Ravenbeak, all along. Um, <laughs> which that's fine, you know. Par for the course for video game twists and everything. Um, but then... Right before the fight starts, he has a line that's something like, 
You have disobeyed me. My <laughs> daughter. <laughs> and I tell I couldn't take this game seriously after that. I'm like, what is even going on here? They do a cinematic, they do a flashback, but I'm like, this this feels so hokey here. And I feel like that took me out of the mood for going I'm like, come on game, if you're gonna ask me to go through all this, try a little harder on this part. It was extremely campy. Um I will give you that. And you know, I don't think anyone would ever hold up uh, Metroid and Samus as like the uh, sci-fi story par excellence. I think it's meant to be campy. It's meant to be Baroque and weird and kind of goofy at times like this. Um, even though it takes itself extremely seriously, which I, yeah, I, guess I don't is think they did this intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're, you're probably right. Um, I, I remember that line and honestly, I didn't, I didn't think much of it, but I do. Um, I did think it was interesting when they did the reveal that it was uh, Raven Beak that was directing you. And you don't really know exactly when that, that change happened because you do have Adam Malkovich, who is the AI who is present for fusion and other games in the series directing you at the start, right? So, you know, at some point between the beginning and the end of the game, there was a swap made there. But the question is when? Was it right at the beginning? Was it at the very end? Um, my, my guess is it was right at the beginning. But I, I, th- I like that. Like, I thought that was a neat little twist. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it was, you know, like you said, it, it was followed up by some extremely hokey bullshit uh, pertaining <laughs> to, like, Samus's provenance as a Chozo hybrid human and, like, what role this bad guy played in, in all of that. But... At the end of the day, like what followed that was really what sticks in my mind. Um, and what what does happen is you get beat. Like eventually, Ravenbeak, despite all of your best efforts in this battle, like he's more powerful. And what ends up saving Samus is her Metroid DNA. Um, the Metroids were originally engineered by the Chozo, but they couldn't control them. And the Metroid DNA in Samus comes out and ends up transforming her into some crazy samus metroid with this really crazy badass looking armor and a gigantic like huge laser beam like we're talking like comically it, it large. takes up like half the yeah comically large it takes up like half the screen when you fire it like the uh, smash bros um, <laughs> ultimate attack yeah yeah we should talk about samus and smash at some point but uh, <laughs> yeah it's exactly that and it, you basically, you end up like blasting your way out of the planet after the fight and, and eventually escaping. Um, right before that, one of the NPCs and other Chozo that you encountered, Quiet Robe, I think was his name, ends up sort of like uh, relieving you of your Metroidism because he is apparently an ex-Parasite version of Quiet Robe. I don't, I don't know. That, that whole part just sort of was confusing to me and it doesn't matter because it's the end of the line for this series anyway <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, at the end of the day Samus escapes the planet non-metroidified and probably just with a whole head full of what the fuck just happened uh, which is kind of <laughs> exactly what I was thinking but in a relieved way yeah I think it um, you know dialogue all, all said and done um, I think it was a good ending when I saw it Maybe not like one for the books, but uh, definitely serviceable. And really satisfying. Like, you know, it it really had one of those like end of Half-Life 2 gravity gun moments where like you are unstoppable and you're literally like all the walls that used to be there. You're just using this Metroid beam to blast right through them. Um, Melt them away. Yeah, you're just 
you just basically melt the planet uh, or what's left of it between you and your spaceship and then you leave and I think that's basically how Samus felt at the end of this. Like, just get me the hell out of here. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of in agreement. Like, I uh, I had a lot of fun with this game, but when it ended, I was ready for it to end. I think I was ready for it to end maybe just a little bit sooner. <laughs> no, it was um, <laughs> I think I could have done the boss fight if it was a little less difficult that guy was or... If it wasn't for that line before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear you. Like sometimes you like, you need a lot of motivation to get yourself through a boss fight that hard. And the game wasn't doing any favors with its campy, um, stilted dialogue. <laughs> I feel so, like I'm a, I'm a little less, uh, focused on finishing games these days. than maybe I would have used to be back when I was playing Metroid prime and everything back then I might be like power through the boss. You're this close to, beating it you know you you can't just leave leave it be you can't just put it down and these days i'm like yeah no i can i can just put it down <laughs> if the game's not doing anything for me anymore then we'll go with that yeah no I'm, for, I'm with you for me the uh the game was about the exploration the boss vices were nice breaks in between that but i was about exploring the new levels getting the new abilities and learning the different mechanics around there and i had exhausted that portion of the game yeah, I'm I'm absolutely with you on that too. Like I feel much more at ease about um, putting a game down when it ceases to be fun or interesting to me, rather than uh, arbitrarily deciding that I need to see it through all the way to credits. Um, and I think that's a good way to approach these any type of game, really. But um, yeah, well, I'm sorry it didn't it didn't get all the way there for you, but it sounds like it was still a good experience regardless. So um, no oh, absolutely, I don't hold it as a strike against it. Yeah, I mean, some games you're going to want to finish and some you just don't and just uh, make your peace with that. You know what? I think you would actually probably, and let me know if you feel this way, but you probably wouldn't feel as good about this game if you had decided to try and power through (laughs) and beat that boss. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, maybe. Maybe if I was in the right mood, I could have uh, gone through with it. ah, It's possible. Who knows? There were some bosses that took me a long time to get through. This game did not ease up on the difficulty with regards to bosses. And I think that's actually one of its strengths. Like, you know, this was, it allowed you to go along with Samus through her progression as a bounty hunter, right? It was expecting you to meet her where her skill level was. You know, if we're talking about Metroid 1, her first mission, zero mission, if you will, um, you know, she's a newbie. And in Metroid 5, she has all of the series under her belt. She's a badass, so you better be a badass to get through that, too. <laughs> it is diegetically appropriate for this game to be hard. Hmm. Um, but given the fact that it came 19 years after the previous game in its direct line of the series, um, I think we're lacking a bit of that context right now. I think, too, this game was a little bit of a callback to that earlier generation of video games, too, from 19... 19- 20 30 years ago um where you had very difficult bosses and i feel that um a lot of the difficult quote-unquote games these days all follow in the kind of souls-like genre of games like when a game is it says i'm a really difficult game that's usually how it is these days but back then it was um really a lot more about like these are these crazy hard bosses to beat and there are these obstacles to surmount 
Whereas um, like a, a souls like is just going to be more generally unforgiving everywhere. Yeah. It, it does feel like while it used to be par for the course nowadays, if a game has a reputation as being difficult, that is a point to be um, known and advertised, right? Like you wouldn't expect like a very accessible game, like your mainline Mario game or something like that in its main like initial outing through to the first roll of the credits to be like supremely difficult it will have that stuff after the credits waiting for you (laughs) (laughs) but um i'm thinking of like super mario odyssey or something like that right like it's not too hard to get through that game and see the the boss and and get credits but then there's like two-thirds of the game remaining after that that gets increasingly more difficult and Mm -hmm. to your point like Games like Souls Likes that have popularized like unforgiving mechanics and um, a lack of handholding as a response to like over tutorialization in the past are, you know, they wear that on their sleeve. They're like, yeah, we're not going to guide you. This is going to be hard. You will die a lot and you will figure it out or you won't and you'll leave. <laughs> <laughs> So what happens when a important game genre that you helped co-found goes so far and you're returning to make a new one 30-something years later? Yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, obviously Metroidvania uh, is uh, a very popular type of game, a term for a game. It's a turn of phrase that was popularized by Jeremy Parrish, you know, formerly of 1UP. But he heard it from another person he worked with, Scott Sharkey. And really it's like... It's the term that was used to describe games in the Castlevania series that had adopted elements from Metroid. But we don't talk about that Vania side very much, right? Castlevania (laughs) is half the name. Um, But really, I think all the mechanics come from Super Metroid. (laughs) Did Castlevania have a double jump? I I mean, it did in Symphony of the Night, um, which I think is the Ur-Metroidvania. Although I guess Super Metroid is also the Um, Ur-Metroidvania. Co-founders. Yeah, I would I would think of those two as like the the king and queen uh, of Metroidvanias, and mm-hmm. from there we get so many interesting things, all of which I really like. Like this is a genre that I love, right? Like you get things down the line like Aria of Sorrow, and then you get uh, the Ori games and your Axiom Verges and Hollow Knight. Of course, Hollow Knight. Yeah, you get your Hollow Knight, and to my mind, you also get Dark Souls. That's basically like a 3D Metroidvania in my mind, at least. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that this was taken as far as it was because it's one of my favorite types of games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, a long lineage with lots of different interesting pathways. It's kind of interesting to see where some of them diverged, um, like Dark Souls, like you said. Uh, I can kind of see some Metroidvania elements in there in terms of the exploration and uh, maybe not like you unlock a traversal ability uh, but rather you learn more about the game and you go through but you know it's like taking the formula and twisting it around a little bit and kind of seeing where everything goes with that Um, even for a company of Nintendo's quality in terms of them putting out good games I gotta think it can't be easy to come to such a popular genre and know you know you might not make the best Metroidvania this year 
Yeah, despite the fact that it's literally like something that they founded. It's like if Nintendo wasn't able to make the best Zelda game. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, which, you know, some would argue that maybe they, they aren't anymore. It's nice when you can make a thing that puts an idea out in the world that other people can take and run with. Like, mm-hmm. that is always a... I think it's always a good thing. Everything's a remix to, to one extent or another, I suppose. And mm. the, the remixing of the Metroidvania genre, just like they remix the Zelda genre and the platformer and the shooter and whatever other genres you have, like, it's in those remixes that you find what really resonates with you the most. Um, it's usually not, like, the up-and-down original that really, like, does it for you specifically, right? Like, unless you're a very specific type of person. But you can certainly recognize the elements of it that made it so popular. Um, And sometimes they're still the ones that do it the best. And I think there's definitely an argument to be made that Metroid Dread does some Metroidvania things just about as well as anyone else out there is doing them right now. I'd agree with that. I kind of wonder, too, if that's part of the reason why I didn't click with uh, Super Metroid. Is by the time I played Super Metroid, um, I've played quite a few Metroidvanias who, with the benefit of another... 20-something years of game development (laughs) experience and um, just kind of genre progression managed to do a lot of the things Super Metroid did, but better in different ways. Maybe not like one game did everything better, but like you've seen all the mechanics polished and perfected. Yeah, and I think there's still some things that Super Metroid does that other games just haven't been able to replicate as well. Like, it might not be mechanical stuff, but there's definitely mood stuff in Super Metroid, like the feeling of being, like, really alone on a planet, and just, you know, there's basically no dialogue in that entire game. It's just, it has such a feeling of isolation. Like, if they if they did Metroid Dread style of titling for Metroid for Super Metroid it would be called Metroid Isolation or something <laughs> and I I think there are still aspects of those old games that hold up and are exemplars in their own right but to your point a lot of the rough edges of them have been smoothed off and done better in recent games So with that, let's uh, charge up our power beam and unleash a three-word review. My three-word review is Subtly Guided Tour. While Metroid Dread has proved the granddaddy of them all can still hang with the pack, it's a bit sad to me that The Descendant of Metroid, a game so non-linear that it inspired an entire subgenre, is afraid to let players get lost, preferring to subtly and sometimes not so subtly, lead the player to where they need to be. And while Dread sometimes feels a bit too much like a guided tour, as the finale of the mainline Metroid saga, it's perfect. It looks great, it's a modern take on a classic 2D formula, and as the climax of a five-game mainline arc, it feels like a fitting, high-tension send-off. As much as I love playing Dread, I'm not left immediately pining for another 2D Metroid. The world is full of this style of game now, and other series have taken the genre in interesting new directions. So while the future is unclear for Samus Aran and the 2D Metroid, the future for 2D Metroidvanias is clearly a bright one. Nice, nice. And you didn't just write that after our little discussion on Metroid. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Right. no, though I feel like I repeated all the same points, so whatever. <laughs> you you, uh, you return to them. We call that a callback in the comedy business. It's a reprise. <laughs> all right, my three-word review is a classic, Polished. Metroid Dread does a great job bringing the feeling of of the classic side-scrolling Metroids to a new generation. 
Tons of attention has been paid to the little details, and as a result, the game feels great in the hands. It's a joy to explore and uncover side passages, or to finally break through a door that's been locked since you started the game. I'm guessing that some people didn't like the long travel times, I wasn't a huge fan myself, or when an environmental effect caused, caused the lack of a sh or the loss of a shortcut. A more robust waypointing system would have helped here. That said, I very much appreciated the surprises that those environmental effects had along the way. This game has satisfying set pieces and challenging bosses. The difficulty of the bosses felt like a callback to the old school platformers, and they were, with a few exceptions, fun to beat. The Emmy robots were a mostly positive change of pace from standard exploration, and they created an interesting two-beat rhythm whenever you'd enter an Emmy zone. Escape, then explore. While I did feel like some boss fights were unnecessarily hard, and in fact didn't bother to finish because of this, I certainly enjoyed my time on planet ZDR. And with that, we want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and keep on gaming. So I noticed in your history of the Metroid games, there was one title that was not mentioned. The Other M? The Other M. <laughs> I still know very little about that game. Um, I wish I knew more, but no, it's it's one that, like, I just... I feel like it's not even as bad as its reputation precedes it to be, but I just have never felt an interest in, in going there. What I remember hearing about the game is that instead of, like, beating a killer robot to steal its abilities, you have all your abilities at the very beginning, but your commanding officer... Adam Jenkins, or whatever his name is. Malkovich. He hasn't allowed you to use those abilities yet. Well, that sucks. <laughs> so, so he's the main enemy of that game. <laughs> no, no, he's your love interest. Oh my god. Okay, well that sucks. <sighs> I need to just remake that game with like Samish Smashes the Patriarchy or something like that. Just like right at the beginning, like Doom Guy style. She just like breaks off the transceiver that limits all her powers and then just proceeds to beat the game extremely quickly. <laughs> <laughs> or in my head canon, you know, it was revealed the AI and the Adam Ma Malkovich AI was um, uh, really the evil Raven ba Beak. Maybe that happened back in that <laughs> game too. All part of the twist. I have one final note on Samus. Um, as a character, she has, to my mind, one of the most memorable iconic death scenes like whenever she dies you get this very like cut to black and then the suit explodes and you see her sans power armor and it fades to white um and they've done this in every 2d mainline game since it's um or since super metroid and i think it's a, like a really effective and memorable death right like it's as good as mario's like da -da 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 -da, or whatever the hmm. you know whatever happens there but I, I like i still have distinct memories of the sound that happens when when samus dies and i think 
that is another sort of audiovisual highlight of the series, even though it's a low light from gameplay perspective. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a nice little signature they got on it on the game, right? Like a, mm-hmm. uh, something they bring back from old games. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's the sign of a good long-running series that they can have a iconic callback like that that's usable um, basically over the course of 30 years. 